Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James and welcome to the show today. Brought to you as ever by The Athletic. We're going to be looking back at the international break for some Fulham players and of course previewing Sunday's big game against Everton. Midday kickoff live on the BBC if you're here in the UK and maybe a chance for Fulham to get some points on the board before a really, really tough set of fixtures. But of course, we know that that game on Sunday is not going to come without its difficulties as well. Firstly, joined by Jack Collins. Hello, Jack. Hello, listeners. Hello, Sammy. How are we? Fine, thank you. Have you had a nice international break watching all the football? Yeah, I love the international break in stark contrast to you know pretty much everybody else on earth. I think um, I'm a huge proponent of it. I think it's the best type of football, and I've I've loved it. And we're going to talk about some of the things that I've enjoyed most. So that's exciting as well. And as ever, joined by Peter Rutzler, Fulham's correspondent for the Athletic UK. How you doing, Peter? I'm good, thanks, Sammy. How are you? I'm complete opposite to Jack. I think the international break is a scourge on all of our lives. So this could be fun. Great. Well, I will just sit perfectly in the middle and, uh, and let the debate flow uh, between you all. Well, first of all, let's come on to some Fulham headlines from the international break. And look, there's only one place to start. Um, probably for us in the UK, it was probably the biggest game of the international break. I imagine Jack will say, speak for yourself. But Scotland versus Serbia, um, it was a crucial Euro 2020 playoff. And of course, there was vested Fulham interest there. Uh, not only because, of course, I imagine Tom Kearney would have been cheering on all his Scotland teammates as he's so massively invested in the Scotland national setup. But Alexander Mitrovic missed the crucial penalty for Serbia, which ultimately sent Scotland through and it's their first major national tournament for 22 years. And Peter, from a Fulham perspective, obviously many of us may have been happy to see Scotland go through, but from a Fulham perspective, it was pretty, uh, pretty hard to watch Mitro miss such an important penalty for his country. It was such a shame it fell to, to Mitro with the fifth penalty, wasn't it? And I think he got just got the feeling when it when it came down to it, the way everyone was slotting their penalties away that that Mitrovic might miss his. And obviously, having missed the one against Sheffield United, and we've talked about his penalty record itself. You know, I, I've written about it on, on the Athletic as well. It's it's not the best. Um, it just kind of set itself up for it, and because it was such an important game, especially for Serbia who haven't qualified for a European tournament, you know, since their since their independence actually. Um, so you know, it's a it's a massive moment and. I guess from a Fulham perspective, we just have to hope that he's able to pick himself up again and and get going again. I guess that's the main thing for Mitro. I mean, I read some articles, Jack, from Serbia that weren't placing a huge amount of blame on Mitrovic, but he wasn't particularly effective in the game either. And maybe first rumblings from Serbia fans that is Mitro the right option up top? He's had such a hard six to nine months he seems to have to be justifying his his place in both sides more than ever the, the one thing about the penalty is it's it's not actually that bad a penalty <laughs> you know he hits it low hard it's a brilliant save if, if we're being perfectly honest from David Marshall and and that probably should be considered if the keeper makes an unbelievable stop from a penalty they should be given credit as much as you know you do expect most people to score from 12 yards that you know when you look at it like that you think okay he's hit that low hard in the corner and it's a, it's a good stop and 
And that in itself, I suppose, offers some relative comfort. It's not like he's skied it over the bar. It's not like he's, you know, tamely rolled it down the middle. He has forced a very, very good save. It's not going to be much condolence, I imagine, given that his country are now not going to be in the tournament next summer. But, you know, there's something for us in that he has hit that penalty well. And, you know, I think nine times out of ten that goes in. So so that's that's something to to probably bear in mind a little bit. Yeah, and, and I know what you say about, about justifying his place. I think in some ways he's probably under a little bit less pressure country-wise because of the fact that Luka Jovic has, since his move to Real Madrid about 16 months ago, basically failed to appear never mind set the world alight he scored I think once in the league in in that 16 month period and and in that kind of regard and given that Mitrovic plays pretty much every week for Fulham you'd expect that there is going to be elements of well you can't really justify selecting someone else ahead of him when he's not playing week in week out yes it's Real Madrid yes you know there are other factors to consider but ultimately he's probably not going to be first choice if he's not playing. That said, he's nabbed three in the international break. And if Madrid can find a way to use him, then you'd imagine that Luka Jovic will be knocking on the door, whether that means that Serbia go two up top, which I actually think might suit Mitrovic quite a lot. Um, it is another question, but I wouldn't be too concerned, you know, especially given what you said about the fact that the Serbian press weren't particularly fussed, I'd say, that it was Mitrovic that made the mistakes. It was the, you know, the, the actual game itself where people tended to find fault with the issues. Yeah, I just follow up on that. As Jack was saying, you know, we did a piece on just how it was sort of went down in Serbia because you do sort of think with with it being such a big moment and, and Serbia not qualifying and, and everything that comes with it, the pressure of it, you know, you'd think there'd be some kind of of backlash. You know, um, Serbia as Yugoslavia in '98 had a have their own memories of missed penalties with with uh, Predrag Mijatovic missing missing in the second round against ne- in the Netherlands, and that proved so costly, but. You know, as Jack was saying, the, the reaction there is, you know, it's they're not fussed about Mitrovic. You know, he's actually got a lot of credit in the bank um, on the international stage. He scored so many goals for them, especially he scored 10 in qualifying. I think he's two off their all-time record goal scorer now. So I think, you know, as Jack was saying, that the focus was definitely on the performance because they came into that game off the back of a really strong performance against a strong Norway team with loads of good players in it. You know, Haaland and Odegaard and Joshua King. Um, and beat them in, in extra time, but actually played very well over 120 minutes. So there was more disappointment that they didn't really live up to the expectations. And, you know, Scotland were really impressive in that game. You know, they were on the front foot for most of it. And Serbia didn't show the threats that they do have in, the, in their arsenal. And, and Mitrovic, I, I wouldn't say he had a bad game, but he wasn't involved as much. You need to get the ball to him. And I think they struggled to do that. And um, I guess the real question is how how he takes it. You know, we we see him as a strong character. He always presents himself in that way, and being able to to shrug off these kind of difficult things. But this this is kind of a big thing to take. You know, there's no getting away from that. So it'll be down to him personally. It'll be down to Scott Parker and the team back at Fulham to try and pick him back up. And I'm sure they will. Uh, and it is he's so important for the club going forward this season as well as we know in terms of his goal threat and the options Fulham have. So. Yeah, it just depends on how, how he bounces back. But I think on the international stage, you know, obviously there's Jovic coming through, but as Jack said, he hasn't really set the world alight yet. Um, he seems to be in, in good stead for now. I mean, there's two players, isn't there, this weekend who with a with a massive point to prove for, for Fulham. Mitrovic is hopefully going to try and channel that energy into good ways. And Adamola Lukman, we believe as well, will be trying to make up for, for what was a massive missed opportunity against West Ham. I mean, I guess, Jack, long term, from a Fulham perspective, Mitro getting a break this summer, considering he didn't have a break last summer, has had this niggling injury 
may not be a bad thing. I mean, obviously we don't know if he'll be at Fulham next season, but I guess that maybe is a silver lining from a Fulham perspective is Mitro having a holiday may not be the end of the world. Yeah, no, I see. I mean, look, 120 minutes played in that Scotland game and, and I was worried because that's a lot of, of football and he's been playing a lot for Fulham. You know, there's there's a lot of minutes in the tank, but then for him to get an extended rest in the next two games, I think is, is not the end of the world, like you say, you know, and, and the fact that, you know, he hasn't had the opportunity to bounce back on the international stage may sit badly with him. You know, I think that there is, you know, a, a chance that he was the one willing to to get back on the line and fight for it and, and really like show that he can he can bounce back from this. But equally, if that comes in a Fulham shirt on Saturday, then I don't think or Sunday, then I don't think any of us are going to be complaining massively. So. So, yeah, I mean, the, the one other kind of weird narrative here that I don't think you touched on right at the beginning, Sam, was that, that Tom Kearney is is Scottish, right? And and the fact is that now Scotland are going to be playing in a in a tournament next summer. And look, there have been plenty of questions and debates around whether this is something that will happen or will not happen. And and ultimately, I think there are there's more at play here than just form for club. But if you look at it now and you think, okay, the, the chances of, of of Tom Kearney getting an England call up are minimal, right? Let, let's be perfectly honest. It, it's can he be, get an England call up now? He's played for Scotland, not in a competitive game in friendlies. Oh, he could, interesting. He could fully Declan Rice it, but he, oh, okay. um, you know, much as I disregard that as a, as an idea, and I think it should be, I think it's nonsense. It is a thing that you can change after friendlies, and. And that was the whole question about the injuries and, and Scotland saying, oh, is he waiting because Gareth Southgate was making overtures? And, and, and look, the bridges may well be burnt. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that they, they are suddenly going to reform again. But I think there is questions there that if Tom Kearney goes and shows his worth through an entire Premier League season, that it will be hard for Scotland to leave him out of a squad that is probably lacking a little bit in midfield creativity, right? And, and the fact that Ryan Gold hasn't been called up for a while, I think it shows you that there is maybe a space here that that can find that would suit someone like Tom Kearney to get into this squad and play. And if he goes to show the form he's been showing for Fulham for the last couple of games and progresses that through a whole season, I think he'll make it very difficult for himself to be ignored if the bridges are still on the table. So, so there's that element too, which is probably a good thing for, for us if it is something that might happen. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with Jack. I mean, if, if, if that option is still on the table for Tom, you know, he's quite clearly, he's, he's, an, he's an excellent player and he would clearly be an asset to that Scotland team who, as Jack says, don't really have that creative edge that, that Kearney brings. He's, he's quite a unique player in that sense. You know, they've got John McGinn driving from midfield and, and Ryan Christie, who was so good on uh, against yeah. Serbia. You know, I think having having someone like Kearney in their ranks, it almost wouldn't make sense not to have him. So from a Fulham side, having having that option open for Tom would be would be fantastic for the, for the summer. One to dig into, Peter, I reckon. Yeah, I'll be on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, Peter, that your your article that you wrote with Ryan Conway, which was kind of a mixture of Scotland and Serbia reaction from that game, and it delved into the, the Serbia press reaction, uh, is still up on the Athletic UK app. And if you use the uh, the web address, theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod, uh, you can get the Athletic and access to all of Peter's articles and all the other articles on the Athletic. And you can listen to this pod advert free for just one pound a week, theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod if you want to claim that offer. Um, let's look at uh, someone else who has impressed during their uh, international break is uh, Marit Rodak, uh, obviously qualified for Euro 2020. Uh, sadly, especially for Fulhamish's uh, very own Lydia Campbell at the expense of, of Northern Ireland and then um, made some great saves as well during, during their Nations League games. And I'm sure Scott Park is not going to read too much into how he played during the international 
international break. But but good for Marek, I think, is uh, my main overriding feeling because it's been a tricky couple of months for him, hasn't it? Absolutely, and and also you know it's a it's a big one for. It's a big one for him because he's not necessarily Slovakia's first choice goalkeeper either, right? You know, obviously, um, Martin Dubravka of Newcastle United is also Slovakian. And he's someone that, you know, has has had that number one spot. So for, for Marek to come in during that injury, step up and, and make the saves that he did, he was absolutely excellent throughout the international break. But there's a particular save from, from Lee Griffiths that has drawn the eye. Um, you know, an absolutely unbelievable one-handed stop. And it, it's one of those things where it's great for him for, for his confidence. Great for him that he's getting game time. Great for us that we have, a, a you know, a keeper in form and and kind of raring to go and be excellent competition and obviously learn from someone of the experience of Alphonse Areola. So, so all of these things come to play together, right? And, and I think in, as a whole... It just ends up being, you know, good for everybody, this kind of thing. And 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 it gives Scott Parker, I wouldn't say selection dilemmas because I don't think he's going to drop Ariola after the, you know, the last couple of games where he's been excellent. But it just keeps Marek in mind, I think. And it keeps him, you know, snapping at Ariola's heels, which is which is good competition for everyone. And, you know, I'm mostly just delighted for Slovakia. Uh, those of you that, that listen to ranks will know that I've, I've taken, taken on Slovakia as my team for next year's uh, Euros, given... given Given the failure of the Republic of Ireland at their at their hands, um, and and with that in mind, I'm you know I'm, I'm over the moon for Marek, and I'm you know excited for the boys come come June. It's that competitive games as well, isn't it? Just making sure he's, he's playing and having dropped out the team, and then you know there's no cup games now until until January. Having the opportunity to play those matches, you know, maybe this is a point where I'm being quite positive about the international break, Jack. So you know. Fair play for that argument. Absolutely. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I mean, one interesting one that came from the international break, uh, Peter, and I know you were interested to touch on this, was Stefan Johansson. Now, obviously, we know he's not playing uh, for Fulham at the moment, but he was uh, very much at the centre of this Norway storm and it's come around because of coronavirus. And that is... The, the, the crux of this international break like I, I like international football I enjoy watching it and of course the summers are fantastic with it but like this international break considering that Europe is at the height of uh, the second wave of the pandemic has been pretty bonkers yes I can understand that there were big important qualifiers that that needed to be played but did nation league dead rubbers between England and Iceland need to be played and obviously Norway couldn't even field a team at the, uh, uh, during during this international break yeah, I'm with you on that, Sammy. I, I found the, I, you know, the international break at this point seems quite crazy, um, and you know it does throw up different situations. You're putting different groups of players together, and suddenly you get positive tests, and then you're you're putting other games at, at risk when they come back to their clubs. And it'll be interesting to see what the fallout is. And that's not even mentioning the injury situation at the moment because of the way those fixtures have been stacked in in every domestic league, and it it, it may it makes this break seem. You know, from my perspective, anyway, I, I think it was you know, a lot of games that didn't need to be played. That said, I'm a massive fan of the tournaments. We all love the tournaments in the summer, and you've got to try and find that that balance. Um, but yeah, the Norway situation was a weird one for for Stefan Johansson. Um, the Omar Abdelawi received a positive COVID test, and that meant that the Nor- Norwegian government intervened and said they couldn't travel to face uh, Romania uh, for their Nations League game. I think. And so, you know, they're Norway the only country to do this. Uh, the game was forfeited. Uh, Johansson, along with uh, Joshua King and uh, Martin Odegaard, um, 
released a statement basically saying, you know, we, we, we feel we need to be playing this. It's detrimental for the long term, the short term for the country. And uh, it just put Norway in a really, really strange situation where they had to then call up a whole new squad to face Austria for their Nations League game. And they almost won it, actually. <laughs> it was denied in the 94th minute. I think that would have actually, you know, I think they would have won the group if they if they'd held out there. So, a really a really difficult one for for, for Stefan. Obviously, he's not he's not playing. He's not in the Premier League squad, but you know, he he's still training with with he's still training at Fulham, and um, you know, it's it, it's a it's a difficult situation that. And I guess from his perspective, they'd they'd want to be playing games. If you travelled, you want to play, but then at the same time, you as Alab Dalawi shows and not the other examples across the Premier League, even Mohamed Salah's picked up a COVID a positive COVID test. So test results so it's it's really tricky I think to have an international break at this point um and finding that balance between tournaments that are necessary and not necessary you know I, I think that could really have been looked at and you're looking at three games in the tight tight time span you know I think it's fortunate you know for for Alexander Mitrovic that he only played two and he missed that second one against Hungary from a Fulham perspective but if you're playing three games in that tight what it's about 10 days isn't it then you're traveling back it's it's not great it's it becomes much more of a challenge and then it strengthens arguments for five substitutes um which i personally am against a switch during a season i just don't think that's good for the integrity of a competition um but if you're going to be forcing the players to play this many games then yeah maybe you do need to look at that so yeah yeah it's a difficult international break and especially so for stefanie hansen I think there's there's definitely something to be said here in that like even as a gigantic proponent of the international break I think that there have been too many games right there's there's a difference I think between my argument that international breaks are not boring and they're full of really really intriguing narratives and this is a dangerous thing to go ahead during a second wave of a, of a global pandemic, right? And getting people to travel across continents and across across kind of the world in in many in many cases is potentially a dangerous and and something a dangerous thing and something that we should have thought about a little bit more. Like obviously, I can appreciate that Nations League games where there's competitive elements actually, you know, for a for a prize and and games that are qualifiers to the European tournaments should probably still be going ahead. The friendlies around them, probably less so, right? And and that goes for, you know, AFCON qualifiers, I have no problem with. I have no problem with South American qualifiers. But, you know, you look at the USA playing Wales in Austria and you think, oh, that's a bit weird, right? That even as much as I enjoy the USMNT games, both of them were friendlies. And you do look at those being a bit like, not completely sure that this game really should have been going ahead in in current circumstances so so to peter's argument i completely agree right there there are there are certain things that you look at and think not sure about that even if the games i you know enjoyed as a whole you know holistically you look at it and think maybe there weren't things that should have potentially happened and i think the johansson and the norwegian situation is probably the best proponent of of, of that actually happening right um, Jack, just a couple other headlines from the international break from a Fulham perspective. Probably both came out of um, of Africa, really. Um, Frank Anguissa uh, impressed for, for Cameroon and, uh, and Niskin Skabana with a lovely goal, with a lovely goal for the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, only played 10 minutes, but lovely strike. Yeah, came off the bench, um, got a ball from Gail Kakuta, beat three men and slotted one in from outside the box. Um, yes, an absolutely beautiful strike. Uh, you know, beat a few players. It was... It was all. It was all very good. I enjoyed myself a lot, and um, yeah, F- uh, Frank was excellent for for Cameroon. They they're in this weird situation, Cameroon, where they're hosting the next Afcon, but they still have to go through qualifying, even though it means nothing. <laughs> so if Cameroon came bottom of their group, 
it would mean nothing. They'd still qualify because they're the host nation. But because they're because of the, the the number of teams in in CAF, they basically put every host through qualification. And if they miss out, then someone else misses out, and they just get space in automatically. But there doesn't appear to be any real danger of that happening because um, you know they're they're going to they're probably going to to qualify. So it's it's, it's a strange kind of element in in many ways. You know, they're top of their group with ten points, three wins, and draw from four games, and. There doesn't look like any danger of anyone really catching them. So we're not going to have that that issue. But Frank was excellent. Scored in the first game. Uh, they won 4-1 against Mozambique. And then, um, yeah, was comfortable in, in the return fixture. So, so yeah, I think he was he was a, a bright spark to, to come out of the out of the international break. And the other weird one that, that happened in AFCON that we maybe weren't going to touch on, but I'm going to anyway, is um, is Ola Haina, who, who played for Nigeria in their second game. So Nigeria played two games against Sierra Leone, both of which they would have expected to win. Both they both of which they drew. The first one where where Ola didn't feature, they were four nil up and and drew four all. <laughs> what in one of the <laughs> most ridiculous collapses I've ever seen. Um, and in the second game, Ola played uh, and they drew nil nil, which was a bit of a strange one. He played on the left rather than the right, uh, which is where he, he featured a lot for for Nigeria and also for Torino. Um, but then, you know, he, he kind of doesn't offer that as much going forward. Um, and, you know, Zaida Sanusi, who played there the, the game before, who's a, a Porto player, um, very much got forward and offered quite a lot to the attack in the four all, um, but really struggled defensively. And Ola came in and really shored things up, but they did lack a little bit of that attacking spark. So it's just interesting when he plays on the left. He, he does lack a bit more, you know, of that kind of thrust that we've seen from him on the right-hand side. And, and, and yeah, I think, you know, while, while there's, there's something to be said for that, it, it was, I think it was good that he's put in a defensive shift and, and kept a clean sheet and, and given, you know, especially given the collapse from four days beforehand, you know, made a, gave a good account of himself. So, so fair play as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, another clean sheet as well, which is so, so important for Fulham at the moment, keeping that defensive solidity. It's nice to see Aina coming in and, and keeping it solid. And Anthony Robinson as well, getting a clean sheet against Wales. So another couple of clean sheets, one for Rodak. It's, that's that's bodes very well, I think, going forward. I think with Aina as well, as you were saying, Jack, just I think he's, especially for Fulham, he seems to be adapting with every single game we've seen him. You know, he, he spoke about, you know, adapting to the tempo of the Premier League. And we're definitely seeing that now. I think it, especially in his forward play, he's certainly becoming more of a threat from the right-hand side when, you know, we've spoken about who who can play in front of him, you know, whether that's Bobby Tuckett over Reed or, or Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Um, and, having someone who's quite clearly an outlet on that side allows someone like Dekadova to drift inside and he can then offer that creative threat on the overlap and, and delivery it into the box, which, you know, it's, it's slowly been getting there with week on week and Kenny Tete can't be too far away now after the international break, which is another bonus of this period. So uh, it's good to see him get another clean sheet and, uh, yeah, as I say, it's, it's good to see him progressing with, with every game he, he's involved in. Speaking of clean sheets, Peter, a new addition to Fulham's defence has been Joachim Anderson and that he's played two games for Fulham. He nearly has kept two clean sheets. Obviously, we know what happened uh, late on in that West Ham game, but being very impressive um, during those first couple of appearances for Fulham. And that's, you know, that's, that's hard for a defender to just come into a brand new defence and, and, and really boss it and command himself like he has. And um, really good piece that you put up on The Athletic um, this morning, um, kind of a profile really on on Joachim Anderson, taking him from his early days at Magis Land, went to 
Twente, uh, moved to Sampdoria, moved to Lyon, and then of course to, to Fulham, and it's kind of like trials and tribulations. So I thought it'd be uh, interesting for you to give a, a small summary of what you found out um, whilst whilst writing this piece on Anderson, and uh, it all started um, with a youthful, exuberant experience um, stealing some Coca Cola bottles when he was fifteen. When I, and I loved how you managed to center the entire piece around it. Yeah, yeah, I let it off. Yeah, I let it off with the the Coca Cola bottles. It seemed like quite an important moment for him when he was fifteen. Anyway, it seemed to be a story that kept being mentioned when when I was asking about Joachim and and his backstory. But basically, you can read about it in the piece. I won't give too much away. But basically, he stole a load of Coca Cola bottles uh, when he was at a boarding school at, at Michelin, and um, they he was caught on CCTV. He got punished for it. He got sent home. He actually got kicked out of the school for a week. And then basically his dad intervened and just said to him, "Look, you've got to got to get your act together here if you want to actually make it. You know, you can you can you can muck around if you want. You can come back here and you know have a have an average job and and do that. But if you want to make it, you can't be doing these sort of things. So uh, it's quite a funny story. It seemed you know it's a nice way to to lead into it. But yeah, I mean, Anderson's had quite a you know circulatory sort of career so far hasn't he he's, he's traveled all over europe he's um he, he's not really that well known in denmark as well which i found very interesting um because he never played for michelin uh he was at copenhagen as well so he, he actually grew up about 20 kilometers to the west of of the capital um played for a local youth team was scouted uh and then left for michelin which is actually 300 kilometers away from his home which is a considerable distance for for a young defender but for, for a young kid to, to move out at 15. Um, and uh, yeah, he then left before making a senior appearance. He went to 20, uh, Michelin at this point. They're not, they weren't under the auspices of um, Matthew Benham. Obviously, he's worked wonders at, at Brentford um, with a statistical-based approach. So this was before that period. Uh, went to 20, again, stepped on. And uh, for, for similar reasons, you know, Michelin had sort of financial issues, which was why the sale was sort of, um, push through and then the same thing happened again in, in Holland um, he actually joined a team with Hakim Ziyech from, from Chelsea he's at Chelsea now uh, Dusan Tadic was there when he arrived yeah um, so some really good players and then obviously made his name in Italy actually um, you know uh, one of the, the former coaches I spoke to a guy called Ted Van Leuven actually said he he sees him as an Italian defender which was very interesting for someone who you know worked with him before he made that switch Um he obviously went to Sampdoria and really stepped down and, and he, they, everyone seemed to speak very warmly of how he got on with Marco Giampaoli at Sampdoria. You know, I think Jack will be able to talk a little bit more about that team. Um, but, you know, they, they were very impressive defensively and, and, and Anderson himself talks about learning the, the tactical elements, defensive shadow play, positioning, the gaps between defenders, midfield, the structure of it in a way that he hadn't before. Uh, and then, you know, his first season, I think he only made about seven or eight appearances. And then it was the second season where he really stepped on and, you know, attracted interest from all over Europe, um, including Tottenham, um, who, who he met with as well, uh, before joining Lyon, which didn't work out so well. Um, they had to change of manager and um, coming to, to Fulham was was a way for him to, to get regular game time and really kick on again. So he's a really interesting player. He's got, you know, he he's still, he's very driven now. He's really focused. He's all areas of his life now seem to be focused on, on, on football from, from press to what he eats for breakfast. You know, he has a, uh, a nutrition, a, like a, a, I was going to say a nutrition coach, but someone who, work, who he works with for, for his food and his fitness. And, you know, he's, he's really sort of stepped on. And now we've, he's arrived at Fulham. You know, he's a multi-million euro, multi-million pound defender who, you know, 
will want to step into what is a competitive Danish team as well. Yeah, I think that's kind of it. It's, um, you know, at those years at Sampdoria, you know, I watched him quite a lot. And Gianpaolo's formation, the kind of 4-3-1-2, was, was kind of key to this. And he, he he built up a really impressive defensive partnership with, with Omar Colley, weirdly, who, who was linked to Fulham. Um, and, and they did. They, you know, they were very, very good. And it was one of those sides that, that really kind of kicked on. Obviously, that was the year that Quagliarella decided he was going to go absolutely ape and 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 you know take the Italian league by storm at the age of 37 as well but I, I think you know you looked at that you looked at those Giampaolo teams and you thought yeah this is you know this is a team that builds that, that's built from a solid foundation and and Anderson was such a huge part of that foundation and I think you what we kind of what I recall from that year was people trying to sign Anderson and Dennis Pratt, who's now at Leicester, obviously, as like a double deal. I remember it being linked to Arsenal time and time again. And there was, you know, there was, he, he kind of, he was the rock. So Colleague was part of it. And th- there was also Lorenzo Tonelli who who kind of came in. And, but it was all based on on Anderson being the heartbeat of that defense. And, and from there, there was, you know, everything else kicked out. There was, you know, a, a midfield three in front of him that kind of, sort of ch- chopped and changed a little bit you know Anderson Aldero in goal and, and Quagliarella were the three real you know heartbeats of the side and and I think from there we were all expecting and I remember him going to Leon and thinking right that's a move that's a really good move for Anderson and it obviously hasn't hasn't worked out as planned obviously Leon are are a bit up and down and I mean you'll know you know better than most Peter from your, your time in France how how volatile a club that that Leon can be but you know it just you know, that switch to three at the back didn't suit him at all. And it, it really did, you know, he, he really did struggle with, with that new system. And and the fact that he, he didn't play very much last year is is kind of testament to the, the fact that he didn't jump in and slot into that system. And that's what's always made me think, you know, we, when we signed all these defenders and there was a lot of people saying, oh, we, we've got enough to go three at the back when we want to now. But I've seen Jürgen Anderson struggle in that system before and I, I can't see Scott then deciding not to to play to his strengths because I think ultimately he's probably the best defender we've got and and if you look at that within the kind of greater context I think it does show that we're going to stick with four at the back I'm not saying that there won't be elements of a five here and there and you know we know exactly what Parker's late game solutions are when we're when we're winning games but I do think that we will see four more often than not because of the way that that Anderson suits it and yeah he, I mean look he's is a brilliant article be and he's he is a brilliant player on his day and, and I remember him being the kind of star of that Sampdoria team you know aside from from Quagliarello who was scoring goals for fun but you're thinking okay this is a defender here who who has serious pedigree and and when we were linked to him in the summer I thought right yeah that's that's a player and even though we haven't seen his best at Leon I think the fact that they've loaned him without a without a, an option to buy and without an obligation to buy suggests that they still see a future for him there and and while that's not a good thing for us I think it does show his pedigree and uh, and ultimately we're, we're looking at a defender here who is who, who very much has the quality and and I expect to see that through the rest of the season his time at Leon Leon was was interesting as you were saying Jack I think it seems People were quite open about it. I mean, you know, he made quite a few mistakes in December and January. You can see, you know, that led to goals and he was sort of in and out of the team. I think Garcia tried to use him in some games, but then he'd fall out of, you know, a favour with Marcelo and, and Jason Denier in front of him. And it, what was interesting was the the tactical element to it. You know, they were saying that he wasn't so used to these, what the one-on-one situations you would often get in Ligue 1 with, with very quick 
uh, very strong and, and very direct attacking teams. Um, you know, Ligue 1's oft, often derided, but there are a lot of very promising young forward players in that division. And and, and the way that Leon set up, as you outline in there, Jack, meant that he was in more situations where he was more exposed and Leon liked to play a bit more expansively. And they tried to push on and, and play near the halfway line. And it was sort of reminiscent of his time in Holland where, you know, Ted van Loon was saying to me that it's really hard to be a defender in Holland because of how high they, they play up the field, because of how exposed they are. So you're made to look ridiculous. You know, Holland love their forwards. They love attacking play. But defensively, it's never, they don't really enjoy, enjoy that, that aspect to it. And it was sort of similar with, with in France, but just that added element of the one-on-one situations. And I think for for Anderson, it was you know there was that, and then obviously there was the the, the change in manager, and it just never quite seemed to to settle. So for him, it's you know now's and now's the opportunity to to really push on and and get that game time, that regular game time, because he's he's got one one Denmark cap. Um, but as I was saying before, there's some serious competition there. There's Simon Kier, who's the captain of AC, uh, captain of the national team and plays for AC Milan. There's Andres Christensen, there's Yannick Vestergaard of Southampton, um, Matthias Jorgensen as well. So there's some good competition in there if he wants to get his, his national team place back. So it's a good opportunity for him to really push on now at Fulham. And, and the, the big pull, you know, he spoke to Kenny Tetta, which, which he mentioned himself before. Uh, he was really glowing about the, the tactical side and the training sessions. And he obviously spoke to Scott Parker, who made a big impression too. But it's the, the way Fulham play and the style of play really does seem to suit him. You know, he's a ball-playing defender. And uh, that was all part of the appeal of coming to Fulham when, you know, there was interest. <laughs> One of the funny things is Jean Paolo seems to be interested every time he's available. So he's, he wanted him at Milan, he wanted him at Torino. Um, so so <laughs> he's got one fan who would always take I'm not him. surprised um, given how good their combination was. <laughs> it worked really well. So, um, so yeah, it's coming to, coming to Fulham is a big, big step for him and hopefully he can push on. And we've already seen some, some promising signs in his first two games. One thing that I took from the article, Peter, was just about the negotiation of his fee and how A, looked like quite a good deal in the end. And uh, as, as far as your article was concerned, Peter, it looked like Fulham have paid 1 million euros for the loan for the season. And then we pay a further 1 million euros um, if Fulham stay in the Premier League. But it just gave me a little bit of confidence that obviously Leon haven't given us the option on this deal, but that maybe... A deal, assuming we stayed up, of course, that's going to be key to it. In the future, next summer, if all goes well, may not be impossible, whilst it would probably cost us an awful lot and Leon would want to recoup the money that they outlaid for him. Because it looked like they potentially were interested in selling him permanently this summer, but they couldn't make it happen. So they settled on a loan. It, it just gave me a bit more confidence than I had before. I was kind of under the impression of, well, we've got, we've got him for a season, but we aren't going to keep him next season. But actually maybe that's not quite as strictly true as I first thought. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's impossible. I think, I think you're right to sort of make that kind of inference. You know, Leon would have sold him. I think is my understanding of it. If they, if they had the right fee um, for what they paid, I don't think that would have been forthcoming this summer. I think that was pretty unrealistic and, uh, they 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 wanted quite a high loan fee was was my understanding around five million euros which which was a lot and it it put off some of um, Anderson's other suitors you know Valencia were very keen as well Torino as I mentioned um, but but Fulham stuck with it it's why the deal was quite late in the window you know it did come down to to the last day he only flew to London on on the Monday on deadline day so um, but Fulham were able to get that down which was which was quite impressive down to just a million up front and then a million um if they stay up you know Leon post their their fees as well once once they're public, once they're done that's why we know that Kenny Tetter was 3 million euros absolutely 
um, because they're listed on the stock market in France. So they have to put those numbers out. So um, yeah, it's a good loan deal for Fulham. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's impossible that he signs permanently. Definitely not. Um, just depends on what the financial outlook is, doesn't it? Um, depends what division Fulham are in, of course. And um, But, you know, if he has a really strong season with Fulham, you know, if that puts the club in a really good position if they were, if they did want to, to try and keep him and especially if they're still in the Premier League too. Worth adding here that it's an impressive manoeuvre from Tony Khan because uh, Aulas is a notoriously difficult negotiator. Um, and, you know, we've seen in, in times gone by and, you know, I think the Tangi and Dombele deal is perhaps the one that, that springs to mind straight away where Tottenham were arming and ahhing and, and Daniel Levy, who, you know, himself is is known to be tight with the purse strings. Is It was a, a kind of look at... You know, he was going right. If you want him, this is the price. And every day, every time you come in with a lower bid, we're gonna we're gonna raise it. So, you know, it is, it's one of those where you look at them and you think, okay, that's it. You know, to negotiate our last down from five million to one million is no uh, no small feat. So, uh, you know, credit where credit is due. Um, right, we're gonna take a bit of a break there, and afterwards, we're gonna look ahead to Sunday's game against Everton. Welcome back to the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy James here, and I'm joined by Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. And Peter Rutzler. Hello, hello. Sunday's game against Everton. Probably the first time a Fulham League game has ever been shown on the BBC, which is uh, obviously good for us in the UK and means that uh, we can all watch the game regardless of what uh, TV package we have or not. It's a midday kickoff um, against Everton. And Jack, it kicks off a really, really difficult set of games for us. And the fact that we are looking at a series of four games and thinking that Everton is the one that we need to get the points out of just suggest how difficult it is Leicester away Man City away followed by Liverpool coming to Craven Cottage um we, we we've seen this set of fixtures for a while now we've been talking about it for a while um and this Everton game is the best chance to get something out of it but they've got Richarlison back which will of course mean that they are a little bit better stocked than they have been in the past three games since he's been suspended yeah, and, you know, Hammers back to, to full fitness as well. And, and Luca Dean, who obviously returned for the Man United game, but was missing in, in the games beforehand. This is, you know, a side that looks like they're vaguely back to, to full fitness. You know, Seamus Coleman might well be out. Um, given the well, given the island situation with, with with COVID and and all of these different bits and bobs, but this is a side that uh, you know started the season brilliantly, and you know where people were talking about in in the highest regard, and then have uh, have had themselves a little stumble. Obviously, lost two 0 to Southampton, then lost two one to Newcastle, then lost three one to Manchester United. So it is you know there is precedent for for them not being invincible shall we say here um there, there's plenty of precedent that, that they can be beaten but they will have had this time with Ancelotti with the break to to recover and now Hammers played for Colombia they've had a terrible international window um they lost 3-0 to Ecuador in, in their latest game which is you know tragic for them it's the worst start to a, a qualification campaign for Colombia in years and, and Hammers did look a little bit off the boil so that's something to be you know rejoicing in I suppose and you know you just got to hope that we get we get the bounce from Mitro and coming back and having something to prove and they don't have a similar thing with Hamed who who will undoubtedly want to put this international window behind him um but yeah it, you know they're a really good side you know they've they've bought brilliantly they they have incredible talent and depth in you know in that first team and whilst yes you know the, the side has obviously come down a peg since Hamed wasn't hitting the heights of those those first couple of games 
you know, there's no doubt that him, Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin in the form that he's in are an exceptionally dangerous front three. There's, there's no doubt that Allen and Decore in the middle pitched with whoever decides that they're going to play in that in that kind of other role, whether that be Gilfie Sigurdsson, who really needs to ignite his own season, or Andre Gomes, who's been fantastic that first year he was at Everton and, and since the injury has looked a little bit off the pace, but... But, you know, again, he's, he's a quality player on his day. And, and then you look at the back line and you think about, you know, Michael Keane and Yerry Mina and Seamus Coleman and, you know, the, the kind of even the backups there, Mason Holgate and John Joe Kenny, who was obviously on loan at Schalke last year. And Luca Dean, this is a very good side. There's, you know, Pickford, yes, has an error in him. I don't know if he'll play ahead of Robin Olsen, who you know, has had a decent campaign away for Sweden as well. So there's plenty of experience and, and plenty of talent here. And, and Fulham are going to have to work very, very hard to beat them. That said, you look at the recent results and and you can see that that things have, have not gone their way. And if Fulham can use that to their adva- to our advantage, then we'll, you know, there, there, is, there is joy to be got here. It's just going to take a, a very, very impressive Fulham performance to get that joy. Peter, uh, there's a couple of players with with points to prove. Of course, we mentioned that earlier in the podcast. Do you see Scott making any changes to his lineup here? Uh, it seems like he's got a fairly settled one, and I, I guess unless Kenny Tete is suddenly back to full fitness, we won't know that until the press conference, which is probably going to be out by the time this podcast is out. Um, you'd imagine that that Scott is going to stick with a fairly similar eleven, and if there's a change, it's probably only going to be one. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I think it will depend on how, what what state some of the internationals come back, in what fitness state they come back, um, come back into the team. You know, there's been some considerable games played, uh, a lot of travelling. Um, now, and it'd be, it would depend on whether you know Scott's been working on something for the last couple of weeks with the players who stayed behind, whether he wants that balance. Um, so, I think. As you say, you know, there's a real consistency now. There's a real stability to the way they play. Like you can see the way they want to line up. I think there are still some some areas that you can definitely see rotation. You know, we've talked about where Loftus Cheek fits in. I think with the two weeks he's had and working with Scott and working with the team, I think it it might it would be a little bit of a surprise if he's not involved. Um, there's good options in midfield now for rotation. You know, with Harrison Reed available, Mara Lamina should be back um, to full fitness after his slight issue that, that took him off against West Brom. Um, so that there are some good options in there that will come back into the frame. Kenny Tessa, hopefully, we'll see on with the press conference. It's on Friday this week. So I think we'll beat it this week, which is good in terms oh. of uh, coming out. So um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he's back uh, back available. You know, he made such an impression when he made, played his first few games as well. So, but yeah, you know, coming into a game against Everton that I think, you know, you look at the four games coming up, the four difficult games, this is probably the one that you most fancy for them to take something from if they can. You know, it's it's, it's it'll be very, very difficult. You know, they've got players back, Richarlison back, I think, from his suspension as well, which is massive for them. Um, and I really, you really like this Everton team. You know, they've really found some stability and and they seem to have clicked. You know, they've finally put all these different pieces that seem to have been just thrown together over the last couple of seasons. They're now sort of, they're almost painting a picture now. They can, you, can, you can almost see what they want to be. Um, it's interesting reading some stuff about about where Everton have been playing. You know, because of Hammers cutting in on that uh, left-hand, uh, the Everton right-hand side, it does leave Coleman exposed. And if Coleman's not available, maybe that's an error for Fulham to get at. You know, last couple of games, Fulham have played very well down the left-hand side. It seems to be their sort of main focal point going forward with, with Kenny drifting into those areas and, and Lookman linking really nicely with 
Anthony Robinson. So maybe that's an area that they can get down the size of Everton and, and really cause them problems. Um, but I think, you know, when you look at these four games and, you know, we've, we've talked about the fixtures repeat, repeatedly and how difficult they're going to be, but I think taking no points from the four would be, would be tough. Like that, that's going to, that's going to hurt. And I think it will, that will be then shown in, in the table. Um, so if I think taking something from these four would be brilliant, um, taking none won't be great at all. Um, so I think this one's probably the one to look at and, uh, We'll all get a good look at on the BBC as well. So, um, and there is a good article on the Athletic that Michael Cox did, uh, alluding to what you said there, uh, Peter. It's about how uh, James Rodriguez's positioning has led to Everton leaking four goals in three games and uh, it's really really good read again the code if you want to subscribe to the athletic theathletic.com forward slash fulham pod right let's come on to get uh, an opposition view uh, on the toffees uh, dom spoke to tom clark from the toffee blues to get a lowdown on everything from goodison park it, it was kind of momentum at the start kept us going i think upgrading the midfield really gave us a boost from having people like tom davis and out of form Guilfi sigurdsson um, I'm upgrading that straight away to Alan Abdullah Decore and James Rodriguez. You're going to get results straight away, and it's going to uh, you're going to see results. And we did at the start of the season for the first five games or so. Uh, we we saw a marked improvement, but then after that, we just seemed to have completely dipped. It was the first international break. It seemed to it seemed to dip in, uh, and then we came back, uh, played Liverpool, drew two two, and we were lucky to draw that game. It was a uh, that late VAR decision against uh, Jordan Henderson, I think it was, and. Um, that really shouldn't have happened. We probably should have lost and then we've lost every game since against Newcastle, Southampton and then Manchester United as well. Uh, so obviously two games we were expecting to win and then Manchester United game was against them. Obviously out of form, Manchester United had a bad result uh, that midweek uh, in, in Europe and we just, it was two out of form teams against each other. It's just, it's just crazy how we've gone from a really good team at the top of the table to looking like really, really poor. So uh, it's it's strange, but it's Everton. They, they get your hopes up and they let you down. We're used to it by now. So obviously everyone has spoken about Hamas Rodriguez, about, you know, the influence he's brought in. Do you think one of the biggest things he's done is actually not just, you know, bringing his individual quality to the team, but raise everyone else's game? Yeah, when you bring in a player like that, I suppose everyone else has to respond to that. If he's pulling off these ridiculous things in training and no one else is, uh, it, it wouldn't be good. And obviously it, it gives everyone a, a lift uh, mentally as well to, to see people like that around you in the dressing room. It, 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 it picks them up. And I think that was why we did, we did so well at the start of the season, just seeing those characters around the dressing room just really gave everyone a boost. Uh, a few of the players have said that uh, themselves in interviews. Not that that's worn off, I don't think, but... Injuries have blighted us in recent weeks. We've had the likes of Seamus Coleman's being out, uh, suspensions as well to the likes of Luca Dean, Richarlison, which has really blighted us. But yeah, definitely having those characters around the dressing room does give the players a boost and I hope that lasts longer than five weeks. Are you expecting a reaction to coming out of this international break against a team, against Fulham, obviously a team you'd be looking, you know, with our start to the season, a team you guys were expecting to beat away from home. Uh, obviously, we, we we got that win against West Brom, played fairly well against West Ham, but you guys will definitely be looking to bounce back here shortly. Yeah, we will we, hope to, I'm sure, but the former at the moment, I wouldn't expect it. Uh, but obviously, with the international break coming, we could turn that around and with some players coming back from suspension and coming back from injury as well. Uh, Luca Dean will be back. Um, Richarlison, I think, has had three games. He might have one more. Um, but we will have players back who weren't um, available in the last few games. And that, that has undoubtedly contributed to our demise in the last few games. Uh, 
So we will have those players back and we'll hope to be able to bounce back properly. But uh, yeah, following the last few weeks, I haven't, be, I haven't been a pushover really. Obviously, you got the win against uh, West Brom. Sure, they got a point uh, last week if it weren't for our, uh, our old boy, Adam Ola-Luchman, missing that silly penalty. But um, yeah, it, 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 it's not going to be easy. We're not, we can't just come... I haven't lost our last three games. Come and expect where Everton we can steamroll Fulham because it won't be like that. Uh, obviously, with the players back, we will be ex- expecting a result, but uh, it, it's not. It's, it's not going to be straightforward. So if Fulham were to, you know, get get the victory over Everton yourselves this weekend, would, what would what would Everton fans start to thinking about this season? Were they thinking that you know the start of the season was just an anomaly, or would they? And would it would, would I'm not saying Ancelotti is going to be on under pressure, but these players are going to be under pressure to sort of start showing the form they did at the beginning of the season. Yeah, I think any other manager would be under pressure after a, f- a few results in a, in a row. Any pre- any manager's under pressure after after three defeats in a row in, in, in football. But when it's Carlo Ancelotti at Everton, he gets privileges because of what he's done in the past. Uh, and the fact that he's, as a manager, he's a level above a lot of these players. So the blame gets put on the players rather than the manager, as, as we've seen. We've uh, made the scapegoats of managers, I think, in, in recent seasons a little bit, even though they have been poor. But uh, it's really down to the players now, and if we were if we were to lose this one, everyone would be criticising the players, and it would really, really put a down on our season. Because yeah, as I say, this is this is the chance we've had the international break to recover players, get them back from injury. Uh, the likes of John Philippe Kabamin could even be back towards the end of this month. We've, we've basically never seen. We, he's played there uh, one and a half games for Everton in two years. Uh, we're starting to get players back, and if we can keep players fit and not suspended like they've been in recent weeks we can hopefully return to the form we were in at the start of the season again. But, uh, yeah, this is our chance to do it. But if we were to lose this, it, it would really go downhill, especially with a tough December ahead of us. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of a similar way that Fulham are looking at this game is because, you know, we've we've got a very tough run of fixtures now, playing the likes of yourselves, Leicester, Manchester City, Liverpool. And so Everton at home for us is really one of the games here where we're looking at getting a result because, you know, it's, it's a home fixture against not a team who last season were in the top six. And for us, this is a game where we we could be looking to get a result, especially if we didn't pick up results. For example, uh, at home to Crystal Palace and away to West Ham, this is a game where we're looking at saying, well, if we are going to stay up this season, this is the kind of games where we need to, you know, get a win or get a point to sort of to get something on the board. Really, uh, if you're looking at Fulham's team, what areas of it sort of concern you the most? The problems uh, will were quite public. The owner was saying he couldn't bring in a centre back for a while. Uh, he was able to bring. I think he publicly said it was what his fourth, fifth choice centre back that he brought in in the end, which is it's quite it's quite offensive on the players he did bring in in the end. Um, but I think that team's starting to play together better, uh, and uh, it, it's it's not a weak team. I, th- I do think there are a few championship players in there. That's that's, that's the unfortunate thing. Um, and I, th- I think last time Fulham came to the Premier League, they did splash the cast. They brought in the likes of Shearer, uh, Sherry, Babel. Uh, and now they've come this time and, and gone for a slightly more conservative approach in the way that let's keep the team together. And um, it's bringing a few additions uh, to try and up the quality, but not to stay a bit too much. And um, I, I do think the, the, there are areas of the side that we can exploit, and hopefully that will be up, uh, up front with Dominic Calvert-Lewin threatening the, uh, the defence um, if, if we can. But obviously our defence is quite suspect ourselves, and I can certainly see Adam Ollett-Luchman getting a goal. And... Um, You've got, obviously got other uh, players in strong positions as well. We know the quality of Anthony Robinson at left back as well, and uh, and I, I do think you've got some quality players in there. Even coming off the bench, the likes of Ruben Loftus Cheek in, in there as well. So uh, there are areas we will be looking to exploit, uh, notably the defence. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's a 
that, that are areas of strength in there as well. Do you think the likes of Anthony Robinson, Adam and Lookman are going to kind of want to prove a point this weekend? Yeah, especially Luckman. I think um, Robinson uh, has a lot of expe- uh, respect for Everton, I, st- I still think. Uh, but at, at the same time, he obviously will want to prove a point because he didn't get his chance at the club. Uh, I think he should, personally, he should, he should have done, he should have stayed. Uh, but he never, we sold him to Wigan in the end and then um, you guys have picked him up. But um, yeah, he'll be looking to prove a point. But no, um, yeah, mostly Adam or Luckman, I think, because that didn't end on the best terms. He went out on loan to Leipzig when Ralph Rangnick was the manager. And he, he really enjoyed that. He got a, he got a good few chances. And then uh, Rangnick moved position. I think he was promoted to head of sports at Red Bull uh, Operations. Um, and then it was a different manager. When uh, when um, Luckman returned, he didn't get the chances uh, he needed. And it kind of all went wrong for him. And I think he's had a point to prove ever since. So this game especially, coming back to Everton, where he really wasn't happy with his playing time, uh, is, is definitely, uh, it will be a point to prove for Luckman especially, but obviously Robertson a little bit as well. Yeah, and if we're if we if we if we're looking obviously at our front line, you say your defensive problems. Do you think it's something that Fulham should be using, to, looking to exploit with the likes of Alexander Mitrovic up top? Definitely, Mitrovic is always a handful for any defender, and uh, especially when we've uh, we've not got our first choice uh, potentially available. I think Holgate's coming back. He wasn't. He looked a bit rusty last week, and Michael Key made a couple of mistakes as well. Both centre backs made mistakes against Manchester United, and. You can't really make many mistakes with a with a striker like Mitrovic, who's going to stretch it and he's going to uh, be physical and, and um, be demanding of you. And I don't think our centre backs are in the best form, judging by the last game. Hopefully, they can return to some form after the international break. But yeah, they will have a handful uh, with Mitrovic and whether they can actually uh, respond to that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure to be honest. I do think it will be Mason Holgate and Michael Keane starting, but um, Mitrovic can get the better of either of them on his day. Yeah, I think a battle in in the game I'm I'm sort of looking forward to is that everyone will be speaking about Calvert Lewin, Mitrovic, Lookman, you know, the attacking. But I think the midfield battle could be quite an interesting one because obviously you'd like to Corre, Alan, and obviously Hamas Rodriguez in there, and then we've got you know Angisa, who's a powerhouse through the middle. I think he's it's a weak stat that he's got one of the most dribbles for a centre midfield in the league just because he's dr- he's driving through. And then whether we play Harrison Reed or Lamina with with Kearney further forward, I think that's actually going to be a very interesting battle because. Both both teams. I'm not saying they, they want to dom- dominate enough 70 cent possession like Manchester City do, but they're both teams who like to have the, the, the ball play it through the midfield and sort of attack. So I think it'll be quite interesting to see, you know, how you know Alan and Decore, but like and your central midfielders deal with Tom Kearney, who's been a, a lot better in the Premier League this season than he was last season, and he's another player with you know a light Lutman who's got a point to prove here, really that you know he, he wants to prove that he is a Premier League footballer. And so I think that'll be very interesting. Interesting to see. We haven't spoke too much about obviously the midfield behind. Your attacking lineup. How, how have you been impressed with him so far this season? Yeah, obviously that was that was what uh, the instant uh, upgrade uh, I was talking about earlier in in terms of bringing in Alan Decore, Hammers in place of players like Tom Davis and Sigurdsson. Uh, Sigurdsson's obviously playing a role this season, but uh, yeah, uh, the the upgrade in the midfield has been the most notable thing about the the, the seventh team, uh, certainly in the start of the season. Uh, Alan suffered an injury. He, he was called up to the Brazil squad. Uh, last week in place of the injured Fabinho and he did suffer an injury meaning he'll be out of the I think they've got a midweek game I think tonight possibly or last night um, and he was ruled out of that game so whether he'll be fit for Fulham I'm not quite sure uh, and that would be a, a big miss uh, because he pretty much protects the back four uh, he gets on the ball and dictates the play as well uh, he's a really really good quality player uh, and he would be a big miss uh, because 
be some weeks we've seen the likes of Andre Gomez and Gilfie Sigurdsson playing together who are just too slow and you'll have people like Anguissa just driving through them easily. Uh, so if if Alan's fit, I do think that's a big uh, big thing for Fulham to take advantage of if he's unfit. But uh, if, if he is there, um, I'm not sure whether he's fully fit at the same time. So uh, that's something to potentially look to take advantage of for Fulham. So if we're looking at the team that Fulham could face on uh, Sunday, what's, what sort of team are you expecting Ancelotti to field? Like who, what, what, what sort of starting lineup are you expecting to see? Uh, it'll be Pickford in goal. Um, and then along the back, I'd say um, Holgate into Keane centre box. Luca Dean will likely come back in at left back uh, with hopefully Seamus Coleman um, at right back. Now he's back fit again. Um, I'm not too sure about Alan, but Angelotti doesn't seem to have much problems with playing players who aren't fully fit. Uh, so uh, I, I only think it's a slight problem. So I, I do think he'll start alongside um, the core eight and I'm not really sure about Andre Gomez because he, he has been out of form. Um, he was taken out of the team for a game, so maybe I think he'll be brought back in this game to try and get his form back together again. And then uh, looking at the front three, it'll be obviously Dominic Calvert-Lewin. James Rodriguez, if he's back first, I think he's been playing with Colombia this week, so he should be okay. Uh, and then out wide, um, Richarlison's back from suspension. He's had three games, so he should be back in for this one. So I'd expect Richarlison to come back into the team and uh, and start on that left-hand side, which will give us a, a massive upgrade. So pretty much back to full strength for Everton, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yeah, uh, I think it'll be a very, very interesting game between both sides. Obviously, you guys need to be bounced back on a poor run of form. We'll be looking to get straight back from our loss to West Ham. And I said in our run of form, this is probably the easier game. And we'll be looking to get... Well, I think, but yes, it's going to be interesting because both teams are going to be definitely looking to get three points, especially with you guys. We both got tough runs of form, kind of like you guys are in bad form. We had that devastating loss at West Ham in the last minute and missed that uh, penalty. But if you're going to put a score prediction on the game, Tom, what are you going to go with? I do think there will be goals because um, obviously we're quite vulnerable at the back. Uh, so if I... If I were to guess, I'd, I'd go with a 2-1 win for Everton. That's that's a hopeful one, but yeah, I, that's my prediction. Welcome back to the Fulhamish podcast and thank you very much to Dom Betts and Tom Clark from the Toffee Blues there giving us a lowdown from Goodison Park ahead of Sunday's game which as I mentioned is live on the Beeb 12 o'clock on Sunday. Well last thing that remains for me to say is uh, thank you boys for, for being on the pod today. Some great insight into the international break. A little bit of a fiery debate over its necessity and of course great to get that lowdown on, uh, on Joachim Anderson. So uh, Jack thank you very much. Thank you Sammy. And Peter, thank you very much. Uh, thank you too. I mean, it wasn't too fiery, was it? I think we've sort of found some common ground in the end. <laughs> I think, I think, I think so. I, I, I look, and it's it's been a, it's been a debate that's kind of been going on in the underworld of Twitter. I think for the last couple of weeks, and um, I'm a little bit fed up with the back teeth of just the debate. Um, so uh, it'd be nice to get some club football back in our life, even if these next four games are monumentally tough uh, for Fulham to to get anything from them but we'll keep our fingers crossed and hopefully the boys can deliver a surprise point or three on Sunday that would be absolutely delicious so thank you very much for listening I'll be back hosting the Sunday podcast looking back at that Everton game uh, but until then have a great weekend come on you whites you whites